This morning I want to talk about uh, money, master or servant, and I want to use a passage in Timothy. Now we haven't yet got to that yet. Um, uh, sorry, I haven't yet got to these verses systematically. I'm slightly jumping a few verses, but we are roughly in 1 Timothy 6. I spoke on 1 Timothy 5 a few weeks ago, and I felt to actually look at this subject because this is so relevant to what's happening with us at this time, with the gift day imminent. You see, before we read it, it's all right to get these wonderful, miraculous things like the four drachma coin in the fish mouth. But there's a challenge for all of us because we could do something else with it, I'm sure. Uh, Rob perhaps very honestly reflects that, you know, uh, and I, I would, you think, wow, I mean, I don't know if you did reflect because I didn't hear all the testimony, but I would be it, put it, like, putting myself into Rob's skin. This is what I, you know, it's great, but there's a gift day coming. Hang on a minute. I could also do with X, Y or Z for the home or for myself. This would also be very useful for that uh, uh, iPod I wanted to buy or that a car, or depending on the size of the thing we're talking about, or, or that holiday, you know, th- there is obviously a choice to be made even when the miracle turns up. And so we've got to have the right attitude to money generally for God to be able to bless us and for us to be able to bless others and use finance very fruitfully and productively. We've got to have the right attitude to be free to give it away anyway. And therefore, yes, we are looking for miracles, but let the miracle come and then let God use you as a means of supply. And for that, something needs to be right in our hearts. And I think it's a very important subject that we're touching this morning. Uh, It's relevant to giving, but it's not by no means just about giving. It's about how we live, particularly in our day and age and actually particularly in our culture to some extent, as you'll see. Let's turn to 1 Timothy 6. And let's read a few verses, first of all 6 to 10, and then 17 to 19. Verses 6 to 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, the Bible, you might be quite new to the Bible, I don't know if you are this morning, We do get visitors in who are just curious, and you're more than welcome. We get people in who are just passing with the farmer's market. You're more than welcome. We love to have you come in. We were out there, I think, giving out teas and coffees, because we want to engage with the world around us and just tell you about the wonderful things we found in Jesus. You would have heard about some of them in the worship time. 
But uh, maybe you don't know what I'm about to say. The Bible has a lot to say about money and possessions. God is not anti-materialist. He isn't against things. In fact, he has a lot of very practical instructions to his people about things. The Bible is very down to earth. It's not airy-fairy at all. Now, it is full of mysteries. It has some wonderful and amazing passages that I don't know if anybody this side of heaven will fully understand, like Ezekiel and other places. There's some wonderful stuff in the Bible that just lifts our minds and our hearts. There's a lot of wonderful stuff. Lifts them right out of the present world. There's a lot of supernatural in the Bible. We need an expectation of supernatural, even in our provision like we heard last week with the miraculous provision through the fish. God is like that. And yet there is also a lot of down-to-earth instruction in the Bible, a lot of very practical guidance about how to live, how to live free, strong lives in this world right here and now. And that is the way we find God addressing this subject of money and possessions. It's in the Old and the New Testament, but this is a particularly uh, clear example of it in 1 Timothy 6. And the question I just want to pose for all of us, whoever we are, is, is money your master or your servant? Now, I don't believe this is related to whether you're poor or rich. In actual fact, you can see that in this passage... There are issues which might be more uh, of an issue, shall we say, things that might be more of an issue for a poor person and some that might be more of an issue for a rich person. But actually, it's all relative. Poor and rich are very relative terms. There are one billion people living on the earth today, right as we stand here and sit here this morning, who have not got the basic necessities of life. One billion people for whom surviving is the issue. Food, clothing and shelter are just not available to them in any confident or regular way. They can't be sure they're going to get food. Their shelter and their clothing will be similarly um, unreliable. Uh, you know, just this, that's it, Their lives are constantly in jeopardy. That's a huge number of people. One billion on the planet do not have the basic necessities of life. They are what we might call destitute. So there's one billion people destitute. In that context, everyone in this room is rich. Every last one of you are rich. We live in the richest section of the world. We just do. Because we live in Europe, Western Europe, and even because we live in Britain, we probably live particularly in a rich section. With our history of the empire, we still in a sense sort of live on the good of that to some degree with our financial centre. There's lots of little quirks of history that mean that we actually live in a very wealthy part of the world, whoever we are. It never ceases to amaze me how much I take things for granted like the National Health Service. You just occasionally speak to a friend even in a, even in a first world country like America and you realise how expensive healthcare is. I've got a friend, a fellow elder from Hastings, who's now leading a church in New England. And uh, we're talking big numbers of dollars every month to have just a health service, to just be able to get your children and your wife and yourself uh, covered for health. Substantial. 
And if you're not doing that, you are in quiet jeopardy other than very emergency services. Just living in Britain, we don't know how well off we are. We hardly think about it. We just expect medicine, we expect everything, we expect food, we expect shelter. If we hit a problem, we expect some sort of answer to it. Thank God at one level, because that is partly a a heritage of some of our, our, our Christian influence over the centuries. But actually, we've got to remember, we're actually pretty rich by most people's standards here. But the funny thing is, few of us feel very rich because you live, as I say, it's all very relative. It's all relative to what's around you. So even those of us who even relative within our circle of this room might feel rich sometimes or look rich, probably don't feel it when they look at their circle of work colleagues or something else. It's all such a strange thing. That, that you have to struggle with. And therefore, this passage, all of it, is relevant to all of us. That's what I really want to say. All of what these verses say are relevant to all of us. Because it all comes down to, is money your master or your servant? This isn't an issue about how much you've got. It's, is it your master or your servant? So let's just look at the two halves, if you like. I want to talk about money as master. And I want to t- look at three sort of points uh, and uh, they, I believe they come out of these verses. They're really three attitudes that test my heart, and it is my heart as well as yours, and your heart. Is money our master? Are things our master? There are three things that I think you can find Paul addressing. One is covetousness. So the first thing I want to talk about is covetousness. Your money itself is neutral. In fact, money can do great good. Without money, you can't feed, clothe, house or educate people. You can't spread the gospel. You can't build the church. You can't do a hundred good things without money, thousands of things. So money itself is not wrong. It is genuinely neutral. There are three phrases that stand out to me in the verses 9 and 10. They're quite telling. People who want to get rich, the love of money is the root of all, is a root of all kinds of evil, and some people eager for money. Want, love, eager. This is about desire. What's your desire? What's my desire? Is my desire God or is it actually to do better and have more money? What is your gut desire in life? What are you eager for? What do you love? What do you really want? Do you really want that object, that thing, that better house, that better car, that better job? Do you really want what goes with it? Or do you really want God? It's as raw as that, God or mammon. That's how it keeps coming up as you read through this and you read through other scriptures. It's, it's not like how much have you got now, it's what, what drives you? What drives you? Now, we live in a culture that is driven by covetousness. It really is. It is a philosophy that keeps our economy going. That you need this, that you haven't got. Or you need the newest one, you need more. The whole, almost fabric these days of our society is pretty well built on covetousness in some form or other. And materialism. It's literally awash with it. So actually, it is a key battleground for the Christian. 
I was, when I was preparing this, I feel like we, this is, I don't know if it's a helpful analogy, but it's how it almost vividly came to me as I was thinking about it, that it's almost like we swim in a, an environment of covetousness and materialism. But we have our, our heads out of the water, gulping in the air of, the, of God's kingdom, gulping in the good, sweet air of God's kingdom. And if we're doing that, we will swim against the current and we'll pull through it. But once you just stop making an effort, you just begin to drift with the current and very soon you're under the surface, beginning to drown in the materialism of our society. There is no way it is easy to live clean from that. You have to make an effort. You have to be breathing and swimming against the current because everything is geared to that. Everything is geared. You know, it, even just coming through the farmer's market, you just think it's all geared. You know, people love to pay more for things because I think they get better value. And it's all a, a, there's a terrific sort of con thing to it all. You know, and you read in the paper of people who, you know, wealthy people have a big dinner and have, a, I don't know, a bottle of wine that costs £20,000. What on earth do you do that for? You know, and, you know, and it's just like, it's just, and it's seen as, okay. I don't know, I'm not knocking that. I just think we just live with so much around us that just is materialistic and covetous. Now, it's actually money or the love of money is actually an addiction. Seriously. Listen to Ecclesiastes. This is the Bible again. I told you it was really practical. You listen to this. I hardly need to say any more. This is Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. Are you never satisfied with your income? Take it on the chin. Do you love wealth? Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. It just says it all. That is just the surgeon's knife of God's word. And we all have to just say, Lord, I want you to test me. It's not that we, we all str- what I'm trying to give you the sense is not that we're all drowning, but we all are all swimming. <laughs> You know, we're all in this environment together here in our country and even in our city to some extent. It's easy to be trapped by the love of money. And that's why it leads to all sorts of evil. It is an addiction. We've been watching on our television recently some horrendous news, which is disturbing. You almost hardly want to watch it. Like this foul murders of five poor girls, five poor prostitute girls in Norwich that's been on the news this week. But they're all drug addicts. And you, you, you see the family, they were drug addicts, you see the family interviewed. And they're, they're obviously loving parents. And then somehow these poor girls got into drug addiction. And then they had to fund their habit. And then they became prostitutes. And then they became vulnerable to this foul killer. That's addiction. Addiction takes over your life. It takes away your dignity. It takes away your other values. And everything is focused on feeding it. Now, actually, money can end up like that. I don't know that it's how everybody ends up. Thank God not everybody ends up as a heroin addict or an alcoholic. But, but it's just a provocation to us to realise we're actually playing with... You're playing with fire. The love of money is a danger. The love of money. Not money itself. And it says in these verses, some, as a result, in verse uh, 10, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 
Just like other addictions, that's where it can end up. So one challenge to us all is let's make sure we're not too covetous. And it's not an easy battle in our society. Let's test our hearts. Here's another little test of whether money is your master. It's pride. It's simply pride. Look at verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth. Wealth breeds arrogance. Brothers and sisters, it just does. It just does. That doesn't mean you have to be arrogant, but it creates an environment where it's very easy to be arrogant and proud. It just does. Wealthy people, or people who are focused on their wealth, let's put it that way, frequently boast about what they possess. They just do. They frequently are very conscious of what they possess in contrast to what others do or don't possess. That's just how it is if money is your master. It breeds that atmosphere. In fact, a good test of whether money is your master is do you compare what you own to others too much or much? Are you always a little agitated? Are you always sort of, I've got this bit right, what I want, you know, the nice telly or something. Blow, I haven't got the car. Or I've got the iPod, but I haven't got the holiday. I don't know. Is it always like that? That's the edginess of the, of the possession and comparison to other people that can so quickly drive us. Also, do we really want others to know what we've got? Do we want to impress them? Would we quite like them to know how much it cost? <laughs> now, no, we're not all like this, but many of us are tempted at times to be like this. And it's a test of God's word. Money is becoming your master. Be careful. Jesus said, very straight, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That is Luke 12, verse 15. That goes chunk right into most of our culture. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. There is a real danger of wealth making people self-important and contemptuous of other people. And I have come across it I've been tempted to it myself. It's all relative, brothers and sisters. You can think you're not guilty of this and then find that you are when you meet people significantly worse off than you. I've been caught and horrified sometimes to think, actually, I'm, I thought I'm really free from all this. And then suddenly you sort of, find you, and you start being contemptuous. Well, it's their fault they didn't do this. Why don't they get their act together? Why don't they do that? And I'm talking like that about someone down here, although I'm quite free to think that I'm thinking I'm free from it when I'm dealing with my equals. And and actually, you just need to find uh, in your heart. I remember a dear brother at Hastings, a dear man who who was probably one of our wealthiest members of the church and uh, a nice house and and, and a swimming pool and stuff, which was quite rare in Hastings, and uh, hit real difficulties at work. I mean, to do with redundancy, basically. He was very competent at his work, very senior. And uh, I think he was in our cell group, if I remember rightly, or we were in his, perhaps. And, and he went through a very difficult year, very difficult, financially and for his own life, very humbling and difficult. Now, we had in our same group a number of quite um, needy people. They were largely, I think, if I remember rightly, single mums who'd got saved, a couple of girls and, and maybe others, from very, very, I mean, from probably their own fault-type problems, and then some, some of them had been into drugs and all sorts of things, but they were genuinely saved, but they were the sort of people that were constantly on on social benefits. And I think this guy would have been fairly 
dismissive. And he, I mean, he would have given his testimony later about this, so I, I wouldn't be doing him any disservice. But he went through all this year, and he ended up having to go, you know, I mean, he didn't actually lose his house and things, but he, he went through some very, very difficult times, and having to go and, you know, try and get work and everything. And it changed his perspective on others. It really, I mean, he was great, and he was honest about it. And, and I, just, I just want to say to you, you've just got to be careful. He probably didn't think he was arrogant and contemptuous, but actually he was. <laughs> but he isn't now. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and you think, God help us. Just, just help us. That's what I hear the words of God's, Jesus said, don't think a person's life consists in the abundance of their possessions. That is a false lie. That's just unfounded lie of the devil, that their value is somehow linked to the abundance of what they possess. That is just not on. That's just not how it is. That really is a lie. And lastly, a test is security. Where's our security? It's very easy to put your hope in wealth, as it says in verse 17, and not put your hope in God. And I think that's another big issue with our society. So much, and it very legitimately would appear, is driven by making sure you're secure, financially secure. It seems so reasonable, so sensible, whether it's to do with mortgages or pensions. It seems so right and sensible, as I keep saying, to be financially secure. But are we putting our hope and our security in that, or is our hope in God? Real security is not found in things or a thing. It is found in a person, the living God. That's where security is. It's in Jesus Christ. In who you are in Christ, in knowing God as your heavenly Father through Jesus Christ. That is your guilt-edged Totally secure foundation for eternity, isn't it? That's your hope and your security is knowing God through Jesus Christ. Now, it's not wrong to have things and enjoy them. We're going to see that in a moment. But actually, they are not our security. They're not our hope. They're not what we feel makes us feel okay and that we're now safe. Don't put your trust and hope in material things. Very, very important. God says, trust me. He blesses us. He gives us things to enjoy. That's also in the same verse, verse 17. God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. He doesn't actually, isn't, um, we're on to asceticism. We'll see that as we go through. But actually, he doesn't want us to put our confidence in them. We put our confidence in him. I remember personally, for me, a little lesson in this was when I went full-time in 1983, full-time church leader. I was a church leader. I'd been an elder for about four years in Hastings, King's Church Hastings, and uh, the church was approaching 100, about 95 members. We'd started as a, a dozen in a front room in a, a house church, and we started about the mid-70s, and I'd been teaching in school since 1973. So I taught in school 73 to 83. I taught 10 years as a school teacher. And uh, as we approached a clear sort of pressure point, which was a number of pressures coming together, the church was growing and it was quite demanding. And I was, there were two elders, Don Smith and John Groves. I was one of the elders. We're both very hands-on. Don himself was working secular work and had also just contemplated, just gone into uh, full-time uh, 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 at about, uh, about the same time, actually a few months earlier, barely a year, uh, not even a year earlier. And 
Anyway, that made extra pressure. You'll see what I mean. You've got 95 people. They're already taken on one salary. Okay? This is the reality. And then I've got uh, my job, which was getting quite demanding. And we had a third child on the way who's now sitting in front of me. We do love you, Esther. Esther was born in 1983. And we had a third child on the way. And um, it was like, wow, how am I going to have enough trouble coping with the first two without a third one uh, and, and doing my job and leading the church. But, you know, I was a leader. I was preaching regularly, perhaps once, a, once every two weeks I was preaching. I mean, it was reality. We were pastoring people. We were seeing people saved. I, it was very active, but it wasn't very big and they weren't very wealthy. <laughs> and suddenly the challenge came to me John, I think you need to go full-time. Now, that was a mixture of human challenge from trustees and and my fellow elder, but also God speaking to me, deeply into me. And suddenly, East Sussex County Council seemed so much more secure than King's Church Hastings and than God's people. I thought, how are these 95 scruffy people going to pay Don's salary and mine? I mean, I know them. I visit them. I know that some of them might not even be here next year. They'll backslide or move or decide they want to go to the Baptist church. All the stupid things people do. Sorry. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and you, you, suddenly you think, where is my confidence? And it's reality time. Where is my confidence? And I felt God said to me, I am your provider whether I use East Sussex County Council, King's Church Hastings, or just ravens fly in, you know, or whatever, or fish. (laughs) And in the end, you have to do business. Say, God, it's you who my confidence is in. You are my provider. It was a very focused time, and God has been good, and God has completely proved that he is my provider for 25. Well, he was proven it before then, bluntly, but I'm talking about since then. 25 years. There's no doubt in my mind. But it's something, it's not just, that brought it home to me, but it's not just for, like, those spiritual moments, if you like, when, you know, going full-time or something. Actually, it's about choices you make. It's about how you live your life. It's about how you, how you decide with your commitments. Sometimes God is always saying, where's your security? Where's your hope? Where's your real trust? Is it in the money or the, the human provision of it? Or is it in, in me, your provider? So, praise the Lord. These are real issues. Now, let's get on to the second half. Money as our servant. Because those are the challenges. Is money our master? But I also want to challenge us, but a little bit, if you like, a lifter, our heads, because I hope, I'm not feeling down, I want you to be sober for a moment, but I want to say, come on, it's not all like that. You can find that money is your servant. And here's three sort of attitudes that will show a healthy approach to money. Let's put it that way. The first one I want to talk about is contentment. Contentment. Now, this is very important. One of the big gains of being a real Christian is that you can, and I emphasise the word can, be free from the bondage to materialism and covetousness that is part of our culture. You can be free from a restless fear about money. You can be free from an edgy comparison with others all the time. From that unhappy, never satisfied 
horrible thing that is the covetous materialist world we, we are bred into. But you can be free from it. And you can have real content. It is possible. I'm not saying it's automatic, but it is thoroughly possible. And many of you perhaps will testify that it's true. I know you will. That actually Jesus can deal with that horrible edginess that comes with the the covetous materialistic world. And there can be a deep contentment, hear this, that comes not through circumstances, but through your faith in Jesus Christ and walking in the Spirit. You see, the big problem is we all think contentment comes through circumstances. And the obvious one with this subject, if only I had more money. If only I had that holiday. If only I had that car. If only I had that job. But it spreads much wider than that. If only I married that bloke, that girl. If only this happened. If only that happened. If only my circumstances changed. That would bring contentment. That is a fundamental mistake. In Philippians 4, Paul clearly explains how he's learned a secret. We're not going to look at it in detail, but you can read it for yourself. It's verses 12 through to about 13. He said, I've learnt the secret of being content in all circumstances. Now, that is the issue. It's not have you got a lot of money or little, it's are you content? Are you substantially at peace because you found contentment in Jesus Christ? The secret is not found in ourselves. This is not new age. This is not new age. I found some inner peace, contentment. It's not self-sufficiency. It is Christ-sufficiency. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about some new agey thing. That doesn't work. Only works while all the circumstances... Once the circumstances go wrong, that rarely, really works. Because it's not about you and your energy any more than it's about your circumstances. It's about your relationship to Jesus Christ. You're finding your hope, your security and your peace in him. And our relationship to Jesus is not affected by our circumstances. Jesus doesn't love you any less whether you've more money or less money. Whether you're in need or having plenty, to use the terminology of Paul in Philippians 4. That doesn't alter one jot your relationship with Jesus. If you get made redundant, nothing changes in heaven. No one blinks. They know where you love you, you're accepted, they know that God's got plans for you and purposes to bless you. He doesn't go, oh, blow, they made redundant. That's messed it up. Oh, I'm not interested really. I only want people in work. I mean, God God doesn't, that's, that's, just doesn't blink. You're in relationship with him. You're walking with him in all the circumstances of your life. And your contentment must be deeply rooted in your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's where the answers actually come when we hit those crises. Because of that, we can be distracted by both need and plenty if we're me-centred. Of course we can. Both can be a nuisance. Need is clearly a nuisance. We have needs and we get very edgy and fearful and distracted by them. Plenty. We're feeding ourselves. We're happy. We're full of ourselves. Both of them can be a problem. We need to be Christ-centred whether we're in need or having plenty. And actually, to be strictly honest, and I know this from personal experience, having plenty is the greater danger. (laughs) When you're in need, you're quite often driven back to God and you remind yourself that you do depend on him. 
When you have plenty, it takes almost more discipline to remember that everything comes from him. Give thanks for what you've got, brothers and sisters. Don't just give thanks for your dinner, but do do that. Give thanks for everything you've got. For the home, for the family, whatever you have and haven't got, you know, just your bit. Give thanks for it. Because that is a very important... When we've got plenty, it's very easy to become self-sufficient and me-centred. We've got to remember it's christ said it's all for him. We live by faith, not by sight. We are merely jars of clay with this amazing treasure inside. And it's in Jesus Christ that our, he's our source, our hope, our comfort, our life. And he leads us into the truth. And the truth is that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, which we said already. That's one of the truths that we get led into. Now, that truth is powerfully reflected in verse 7. Look at verse 7, because this is how it helps us to be content, right? Look at verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. Womp. That is a truth. Now, listen, that is truth. We brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. John Stott, in his commentary, puts it powerfully and beautifully. We are born naked and penniless. And when we die and are buried, we are naked and penniless again. In respect of our earthly possessions, our entry and our exit are identical. So our life on earth is a brief pilgrimage between two moments of nakedness. That's powerful stuff. He goes on to say, I'm not quoting him exactly, that what we own is the travel luggage of time, as he puts it. Everything we own is the travel luggage of time. It's not the stuff of eternity. Every jolly thing that you own is but the travel luggage of time. There's a famous incident which I'll probably refer to myself because it's been often said that when one of the Rockefeller millionaires died, a a journalist asked his lawyer how much did he leave and got the laconic answer, he left it all. One of the Rockefeller millionaires. How much did he leave? He left it all. Of course he did. He left it all. Took none of it with him. And that's powerful. Now, what's that truth have an impact on our lives? It's just the truth. It is a truth. So what impact does it have on our lives? Well, it can affect our economic lifestyle, brothers and sisters, because it can affect our attitude to money and possessions. We, listen to this, we actually can be content with less than we otherwise would be. Because we have a different perspective on it. Again, all of these terms are relative. Your less might look a lot to somebody else. But this is personal business, this. It's not about comparing to other people. But you actually can be content. Maybe you've got a big salary and you live a lot lower than you could otherwise live because you just have a contentment and a freedom to treat it more lightly than everybody else would. The only things you're getting and owning. In verse 8, Paul talks about the necessities of life. He said, if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. And that actually has been sometimes misunderstood and misused. I believe it's accurate, and certainly people like John Stott and others support this, that the Greek term is a broad term, meaning the necessities of life. Could equally be translated nourishment and shelter. Because sometimes in Christian history, people have said, all you need is food and clothing. You don't need houses, you don't need anything. You need just to be content with having food and clothing. Now, that's really not good hermeneutics. What he's saying is that you need to be content that your basic needs are met. That doesn't mean you can't enjoy beyond them, 
but that's your basic contentment line, which at one level is a provocation that if those things aren't being met, you don't have to be content. You need to be saying, God, I believe you've promised to meet my needs. Jesus said, your heavenly Father knows what you need and he'll provide. He'll provide food and clothing. And I believe we ourselves and our brothers and sisters and all over the world need sometimes to be in faith that God has not said you've got to be destitute. You've got to come. There's not a poverty thing in the Bible. There's not a a, a, a sort of holiness in poverty. There is a sense in which, Lord, you've promised to meet my needs. Now, again, that phrase can be adjusted a little bit, but there can be a fundamental faith position that many times God promises to meet our needs. Matthew 6, which I've quoted already in the Sermon on the Mount. But neither poverty nor wealth are relevant to godliness in one way. You know, you can have two extremes. They're very common in church history, actually, and common today. You can get one stream of sort of theology that would say poverty is holy. And you get another stream that would say wealth is holy. So if you own a lot, that shows you're holy and God's blessing you and providing for you. That's a sort of prosperity thing. Well, people knock that. There's some things to learn from their faith. But then a far more sort of widespread, underlying, subtle one is, well, you know, you actually if you own a lot, you're not very healthy, you're not very uh, holy. And actual fact, poverty is holy. And, the, you know, you find some poor old monk who scrapes bread off the ground and say, what holy man he is, type for thinking. Now, neither of those are right. Do you know what's holy? Contentment. That's what's holy, is contentment. That you're not tying it to whether you're rich or poor, you're tying it to your relationship with God. The real sign of godliness is contentment. That's the sign of godliness. And you can be content with little or content with a lot in the best possible way rather than in any silly way. Okay, let's go on quickly. Another test of... So, is money your servant? Are you content? Are you able to handle having a, a lot or a little with an even keel of contentment in God? Then it's probably in its right place. Here's another one. Generosity. A key test of whether money is our servant or master is how generous are we? Or perhaps how easily and cheerfully are we generous? Are we able to cheerfully give? Do we give with a lightness in our hearts? Do we give willingly? Command them to be, do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous, willing to share. Is there a cheerfulness and a willingness about our generosity? A person who sees money in the right way will have, a, I believe this, a cheerful sense of responsibility in meeting needs where he, can, he or she can. A willingness to share and in the terms of 2 Corinthians, to be generous on every occasion. That is a spirit, a good spirit, with money. And I believe God will trust you with it if you have that attitude. It's not you don't have any, it's, but it's a, as a lightness to your touch. You're holding it with an open hand, someone once said, rather than a fist. You know, you can have more, you can have less. It's, there's a lightness to your touch with it. And that is a sign that it's your servant and not your master. I believe generous giving is quite a clear sign of the movement of the Holy Spirit in an individual or a community. You can see it in the book of Acts and you can see it in life with people and with churches. That there's a sign of life and the Spirit of God if there's a generous spirit. There's an ease about giving. It's, it's, it's a, a good attitude to test ourselves with. In this healthy, godly spirit, 
just let, let me say this. I'm, I'm sort of saying this thinking about ourselves, actually, with a gift day. In this healthy, godly spirit, those who have more don't begrudge the fact that they have a responsibility to give more. They don't sit there thinking, well, I hope everybody else is giving. I know I could write a cheque and meet a significant part of this, but I will just, you know, there's, there's a, an, if I've got more, I've got a responsibility, I'm probably going to take on more of the, the answer because God's given me more. But also, those with very little want to give as much as they can. They don't sit there thinking, it's up to the rich people to do it. If there's some people that can lend that sort of money to the church, why don't they get, you know, and I can, you can talk like that. Don't do it. We're individually responsible for ourselves. We're accountable for ourselves. We're accountable to be generous with what we've got. And we will get the blessing as we give what we can. And there is a sense in which those who have more do have a sense of more responsibility when it comes to some of these things. But those who have little have also a responsibility to give generously out of the little they have. Now, if we all act godly, I don't think we'll have too much trouble meeting the needs we have. But it's very important that we walk before God with a generous spirit. What about stewardship? That's the last thing I want to talk about. I think if we've got a healthy attitude to money, we realise this, that it doesn't fundamentally belong to us. Everything we've got is loaned to us. (laughs) Loaned to us by God. And it's something we can use to turn into eternal value. It's a great privilege to have things and to have money to enjoy, but we can also turn it into eternal worth. It really comes out in the last verse, 19, that we read. In this way, they will lay out treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And I think, I'd just like to put it in more colloquial way, my way if you like, I think what's being taught here is not some view of buying yourself favours or buying yourself salvation. That would be completely out of character with Paul's teaching, it'd be out of kilter with the whole New Testament theology. But what is being said here? Well what is being said is that basically what you own isn't really yours, because God wouldn't take back something that was yours. So when you die, as we all do know and said earlier, you are left, you leave everything behind you. When you die, you leave it all behind you. You don't take it to heaven, not one bit of it. Now that means it's not truly yours. What do you take to heaven? Well, you go. Your soul, your character, you, the real you, who you are, what God's done in you, the fruit of the Spirit that has been grown and worked in you. I believe to some extent, and I know it's hard to quite quantify this, you take the fruit of your walk with God. Now, that may be people saved, but I'm not sure you get like ticks. It's the spirit in which you've done it. You may have prayed for, sacrificially prayed for, evangelistic missions, and in those missions, many people got saved. Well, I think there'll be something of quality in heaven because you sacrificially prayed or maybe gave financially for a mission or or overseas or at home. It's much more subtle than you just led people to Jesus. I hope you're getting what I'm saying. I'm being a bit quick. But really, what you take with you is the fruit of your Christian life. So, if you have things, and praise God most of us in this room have, 
One of the big things to do with what you've got is turn it into eternal treasure. Turn it. And do you know, in God's generosity and blessing, most of the time you can enjoy both it now and in the future. Most of it is like that. Just think about it. Say God's given you a lovely car. Well, do you use that car only for your own use? Is it so special that nobody can get in there with a dirty foot or somebody who's smoking a cigarette or something? Or are you prepared to give people lifts to Alpha in it? Or to, or to use it to take people somewhere? And have you got enough money not to worry about the petrol so you don't charge them? You, you give them a free lift somewhere. Well, you're putting a bit of eternal worth into that car. Say you've got a house and a nice clean sofa in a nice clean living room. But actually, you invite people in and you're friendly with them and you give them a cup of tea and you talk about Jesus. And actually, someone becomes a Christian in your front room, sitting on your sofa. That silly old sofa has just got you a bit of eternal worth. I don't mean you're doing it cynically. It's what it's to excite you. You can actually turn it into eternal value. We've got, we once had a sofa. Um, that's a good example because I can remember leading a young man to Jesus on sitting on our sofa in Hastings many years ago. He went on, he was saved, he joined the church, married a girl in the church, went and had children there, moved down to Plymouth and, and life went on and he's, you know, a family in a church somewhere now. But the first step was sitting on our sofa in Hastings. Now that sofa has long since rotted. It was rotting when he was sitting on it. Uh, but, but actually something happened that's eternal. Isn't that exciting? It's not just that's a very obvious example. But what about just, you know, showing the love of Jesus with a bit of generosity? And yes, investing in either the church or some other thing that is forwarding the kingdom of God. That's the same sort of thing. But it's not that you put everything into it. You can enjoy it. God said he's given it to enjoy it, but you've got to always see that it is just lent to you. You're just a steward of it. It isn't really he who dies with the most toys wins, you know, that sort of thing. It's not like that. They're not that. They're not your toys. They're, they're things God's entrusted you with. He wants you to enjoy them, but he wants you to remember they're loaned to you. And actually, you're meant to have turned them into a bit more eternal value than I've confessed sometimes I've done. You know, it's, it's easy to think they're just mine for me to use and for me to do. And I've struggled in my areas. Like my area's a bit odd sometimes, like lending my books out and stuff like that. that you know, some people say, oh, I'd happily lend books. Say, yeah, but books aren't valuable to you. To me, they are. But, so, you know, so, and you know, they don't come back and all the rest of it. And, and you think, but if that blesses someone, then it's given that book a bit of eternal value. <laughs> and I think it's that sort of thing. It's very much what's in mind here. Good stewardship. The true value of wealth is what we do with it. Is it merely for my enjoyment? Well, obviously some of it is. Or am I going to turn into it into something of eternal value? Here's two phrases to end. Do I see what I have as an entrustment or an entitlement? Do I see what I have as an entrustment? God's entrusted this with me. He's let me enjoy it, but I'm, I'm answerable for it. I'm accountable. I'm a steward of it. Or is it an entitlement? It's mine. You know, I earned it, I was given it, I, you know, it's my entitlement just for me to do as I like. If I want to spend it all on myself, that's fine. No, no, don't see it like that. It's an entrustment, not an entitlement. 
Thank God for the grace that he's given you that every one of us should be a thankful people. Thank you for my home. Thank you for my food. Thank you for all the things I enjoy that you've entrusted with me. I want, God says I want you to richly enjoy them, but I don't want you to grip them as though they were your entitlement just for your own use. Sometimes when God touches us on things like giving, gift days, challenges like we've got right now, I think he does it deliberately for our own good because it touches these sort of things. God just reminds us of his values. Hang on. Remember, it's your servant, not your master. I think that's what God just likes to to sometimes nudge us. That's why he sometimes puts us through the mill a bit and on the rack a bit. (laughs) And it's not because he's cruel. He just wants us to remember the things we looked at this morning. Don't be covetous. Don't be proud. Don't get your security and money. Be content. Be content about what you've got. Be generous and remember it's loaned to you. It's an entrustment. Turn it into eternal value. Amen?